is to get some decent food. You can dig it, man. I'm telling you, I've eaten birds food in this, but then I've tasted better, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, <laughs> you pound down the stuff like this. Uh-huh. Listen, I'd rather be eating something else, but uh, right now I'm digging food. <laughs> uh, you, you just know you know what it's made of. Yeah. <laughs> no, man. I don't want to talk about what it's made of. I'm eating this. <laughs> What's the matter? The food ain't that bad, oh, baby. Okay. <laughs> Watching for fun lately. Books. You've been watching books for fun. I'm actually I I joke, but I'm immensely jealous that you are actually reading stuff. Like, um, what are you, um, what are you reading? So uh, I'm reading a comic series right now. Uh, let me get the exact name of it because I don't want to mess it up because I value this person and their work. Uh. So I'm reading Kevin Eastman's new comic. That's not out yet. Uh, Kevin Eastman, of course, of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I think it's called... Uh, But I'm friends with one of the writers, and he sent it my way for preview reading. I read a really cool comic about uh, like an alternate history where Paul McCartney actually died in 1967. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Uh, I've also finished reading the episode nine Trevor O script, which oof. Um, <laughs> so do you like um, bouncing back and forth between work or because I've never been able to do that. Like I've never been able to bounce back and forth in between books or, unless it was for college. Like I had to like read each book at a time. Uh, so I find it's called drawing blood. Uh, I'm a lot better at bouncing back and forth between like different genres or mediums. So I can bop back and forth between a comic and like a novel or like a science fiction novel and uh, you know, like a biography really easily. But if things are too similar, they start to kind of converge basically. Yeah. Or I just can't concentrate on more than one of them at a time. (laughs) I've also been watching some YouTube videos or playing Animal Crossing. That's mostly what I've been doing. Or playing ukulele. I was gonna say it's it's funny growing up like in the nineties on cable television and like seventy percent of the shows that we all watched were all like new shows, like every like every like TGIF, like mm-hmm. every like actually every day after school there's like a new 
cartoon or whatever, like new faux teen drama of like we're like it's so funny, like we were balancing 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 like dozens of shows at a time. Now, mm-hmm. like I, I barely even watch multiple series at once. Like, I watched, um, I watched Tiger King like all the way through, and well, I watched it all like almost all the way through. I watched the new game, uh, the new um, Westworld, and then I finished uh, Tiger King. Like, and if Westworld had not have come out last night, I would not have stopped. I would have just kept going all the way through. Yeah, I'm uh, trying to revisit Tiger King, or I want to like visit Tiger Kings because people keep telling me to do it. Um, <laughs> it's like it's so. It's like if someone were to ask me, "Is Tiger King good?" I legit don't know. I would say yes, but it's so ridiculous that like you have like. I don't want to say you have to watch it, but it's so ridiculous that you, it's just unfathomable, like, the craziness that that happens, like, I just finished the season, like, I don't think, so basically, the, the point of the documentary, it's not necessarily to champion one cause or the other, it's really, in, in actuality, I mean, it's not really a spoiler, but in actuality, they actually, by the end, they do present it as this thing where it's like, you know, this is actually a bad thing that's going on. But primarily the responsibility of the documentary, it's not really to to have, it's not to go one way or the other. It's really just to tell these the story of these crazy ass, like, yeah. people that do this thing. And so when you're watching it, though, you know, you are presented with, so I get this is not really a spoiler, but this is one scene where um, <laughs> his guy, his name is Joe Exotic, and mm-hmm. he's basically is one scene where he's like, I raise these um, chimpanzees, and I had them for ten years, and I just recently had to like let them go to sell them, and he said the day that they were like sold, they played in this park. And they hugged each other, like, when they first saw each other. And Joe said, for the 10 years, I had them all in cages. And so it didn't think to me, like, to actually have them interact with each other. And he felt like he actually had a moment of, like, wow, like, I kind of did something, you know, pretty fucked up by doing that. And so... You will get you get you will get pockets of that where like if you see the if you watch the show like you'll you'll know like yeah these people aren't really they're not really about this like advocating life they mm-hmm. they all have some sort of like ploy at the end of the day um, but I don't but like I said like I for the creators of the show I I I legit don't think it's about them like exposing to champion like for example Peter's cause but in them uncovering this whole thing I mean they effectively did it so it's it, I, I think people for people to criticize the actual film production of it which well, it, it I, I understand that they're that. trying to bring light to this thing but by showing that you know like I think it's Carol I don't know I've just been like reading it I haven't watched it yet apparently like directly shits on this organization and basically the organization is saying like we understand that they are telling this story but by the fact that they are not acknowledging like this further 
like the impact that this has beyond that is not okay. And I think that the point that they're making is there is an obligation, you know, love the tiger trade or hate the tiger trade to present as much of the truth as you can, even if it's just in a footnote at the bottom. Uh, also, uh, the guy who breeds the ligers... Uh, works at the local Renaissance fair, or at least will will come come to the local Renaissance fair. Um, <laughs> the one uh, based in South no, Carolina. No, 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 no. I know who. You, I don't want to spoil it, so I, I'm gonna leave that. He's the worst one I've heard. Bro, oh my god! No, I well, I don't see. I don't want to spoil it because I if I say one way or the other, or if I even even address him coming to Massachusetts, like, it's it's going to kind of ruin it, but it's, I, without spoiling it, I don't think he's the worst one. He's, and that is, <laughs> and that's really saying something with all these people, but, yeah. but yeah, like. Because, um, like, I've been to the King Richard's Fair show. I have pet Hercules the Liger, like, I did not realize this was nearly so problematic. I was I mean, also no I was also ten, so like probably I mean, good I didn't know. But I don't think I, I, honestly I don't think age actually has a factor. Like because basically these people they they come on to the scene and they say you know we have these beautiful ass creatures, we care we love these creatures so much, we'll let you pet them, we'll let you take selfies with them. And for a so, donation to our our conservation effort. Yeah, but even beyond that, like if you just take it on the fact of like they have these beautiful animals, they're people that are telling you they they preach about care and about maintaining these animals' health, and you and actually they kind of address this in the documentaries where it's where it's like you're around these animals and you actually get caught up in the fact that like bro, like I'm with a fucking tiger right now, like. Mm-hmm. I it's great and it's like quasi powerful. It may like people are saying that they feel powerful just being around the animals. So I think even for me, I'm you know I'm almost thirty four years old. Like you know I don't necessarily go out of my way to like um, actually like go to pet animals or anything like that. But if I had a chance to like pet a tiger and I came through like you know like a, a county fair or whatever, like I was like wow like. As long as they don't bite me, like I'll at least give it a chance. Mm-hmm. And so there's plenty of people that get caught up in that. Um, and actually, the funny thing is, like speaking of that, like I've actually over the last like couple of years, I would say maybe about like um, two or so years, I've actually kind of started disliking zoos. Like mm-hmm. I think the the last time I actually went to a zoo, which I think was about uh, two years ago or a year ago. Yeah, it was like last year or some shit. Um, it really did. I know it sounds super obvious, but it really did hit me at how it's like, bro, these motherfuckers are prisoners. <laughs> like, you know, when you're a kid in elementary school, you're going to the zoos or whatever. Like, you don't necessarily think about that. But one day it really hit me. I saw some sad ass like bear. I think it was a tiger. Actually, I saw some sad ass tiger in the exhibit. They were just there. And yeah. then it was kind of like, 
bro, he looks sad. He or she looks sad as fuck. And yeah, that was two years ago. And I haven't been to a zoo since. Um, I don't know if I actually would ever go to another zoo. Um, but it's it's kind of like, you know, you damn, I don't want to say you damn do, you damn if you don't, but it's like, there's hypocrisies to all these things. Like, even if it's a zoo that's up and up on taking care of these animals and, mm-hmm. you know, feeding them and not abusing them, at the same time, like, these animals are not in their natural habitat anyway, regardless yeah. of how well they're being taken care of. Well, I just kind of remember even as, like, a 10-year-old, like, I was like, okay, so, like, that is a really cool creature. Also, ligers should not exist. Like. Yeah. I I very specifically remember being, like, 10 and being like, no. (laughs) Like, ooh, but no. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I don't know, I just think it's, I think it's, a. actually, I think it's, I think the overall thing that Tiger King should do is actually put it into people's minds, even beyond just going to these, like, you know, you go to, like, a random zoo, quote-unquote, in the, in the woods somewhere, like, what is actually having a zoo and you're, like, a, a, a state-sponsored, city-sponsored zoo what does that actually mean? Hiya, puddins. It's your girl, Holly Quinn, a.k.a. Dr. Harleen Quinzel, here to tell you all about it. It's like a podcast or whatever. We talk about nerd stuff and life stuff. And if you want to know what we're about, check out the Powie Awards, our 100th episode, Q and Slay, or theater from our butts. Have a good day, puddins, and love, trust, and belief. All right, so in this week's episode of We Should Do This Again Sometime, uh, we're going to continue on the narrative of last week's episode where we covered um, the trilogy from uh, a trilogy of movies from a certain director. Last week we covered George, George Lucas's prequels to Star Wars episodes one, two, and three. Um, this week, we're not going to necessarily do a trilogy of specific movies, but um, a trilogy from a director that I have liked uh, most of my life, uh, really, Scott. Um, one, I wanted to cover his first three movies because I think on the surface, they're all pretty interesting movies, but I think it's kind of it's kind of a bit fascinating how this director who had three critically acclaimed movies out the gate to start his career, how maybe his career didn't necessarily live up to like the three movies that he put out. Um, so for Ridley Scott so far, he has 25 total films. Um, 13 of these 25 films have a sub 70% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Now Rotten Tomatoes obviously is Can not- Can I ask what list before. you're looking at? Um, I looked at a combination of, um, uh, Wikipedia and Rotten Tomatoes. Okay. And and so these are films that he just directed. So Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily just produced. So he directed 25 total films. And so, and so, like I said, uh, 13 of the 25 have, have sub 70% of Rotten Tomatoes. Eight of the 25 
have ratings below 50%, including whenever he did that, the, um, that god-awful Exodus Gods and Kings movies where there was basically, like, white people playing Middle Easterners, and he did uh, 2010's Robin Hood. But um, I think his career is interesting because the top half of his, his career is, is really well, but the bottom half is just not. So here's, like, basically his, his top five rated on Rotten Tomatoes. So number one is uh, actually his top three movies that are rated are all movies we're going to uh we're going to cover today so his first movie the duelist uh which he made in 1977 that had a 92 percent um blade runner the director's cut has a 92 percent also and alien uh the original alien in 1979 that that is a 97 percent and for his career the martian uh which is 2015 had a 91 like he actually went that long in between having something that would have that high of a score. Mm-hmm. Um, his fifth highest film is Snowman and Louise, which it's at 84% of Rotten Tomatoes. I feel like that movie, when it came out, I don't want to say it was critically panned, but it was more of like a cult fan, like a cult classic type of movie where it got a lot of reruns, a lot of like continual play from people, but I don't, I don't really know how serious of a movie that was really taken when it was out. Yeah. I will also say that I've gotten a couple of different movies, including Legend, where people straight up were like, you have to watch the director's cut. What they released initially is bad. And I'm like, I think I've talked about this before, but it really pisses me off when movies need to be patched like a video game. Well, I mean, that's the thing with Blade Runner. Like, Blade Runner initially was a movie that was critically panned. Um, They had a... HBO actually used to stream the version, the theatrical version, which it's really bad. Like, it had um, this... uh, So, basically, in Blade Runner, the original theatrical version, Harrison Ford, he did voiceover throughout the entire movie. And it was clunky. Like, it was... It was holding your hand when you didn't need it to be held. Uh, his tone was flat and uninterested. I mean, and he does he does that. Yeah, but this is like really bad. Like it, it mm. really sunk like the movie and beyond. I guess the editing also it would just it would just kind of just bad overall. But it had like a resurgence in the early '90s and eventually became like a cult classic. Whenever the director's mm-hmm. cut actually finally released um so other notable um really scott movies which gladiator it has a 76 percent on Rotten tomatoes i think that's super low i'm really surprised it's yeah oh um black Hawk, like a, yeah black Hawk down yeah and also american gangster which yeah. i think it's a really solid movie and matchstick men which i think is an underrated movie i think that movie really came and went um, but I think that's actually one of the better Nicolas Cage movies. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Nicolas so like said, Cage, you can get a good performance out of him. Yeah, you can. You just kind of have to, to know where to press on it. And it seems like, you know, they hit it off in that regard. Yeah. So, so yeah, like I said, I wanted to really discuss first three movies that mm-hmm. 
Ridley Scott did. Um, but I want to also get your thoughts, not only just on the movie specifically, but overall, um, you know, about those movies and how you sort of view him, view him as a film creator. Yeah. So, so yeah, so to start overall between the three movies, what do you what do you consider Ridley Scott's strengths to be? So I think one of the things that I, I have noticed about him is that he is really good at directing conversations that move the story along without them feeling like they're vomiting exposition at you. Yeah. Um, because that happens in all three of these movies. Yeah. Um, he's also really good at creating uh, what I kind of call like visual shorthand where every shot seems really curated to, oh, yeah. he, to tell your story a little better. Yeah, I think he, especially in these first three movies, like, and even you can tell even in The Martian also, like, mm-hmm. he's really skilled at world building. Yep. Like, he really has that scale and scope. Like, he has that down in spades. And so even for something like, like I said, we'll get more specific in the movies a little bit later, but even for something like Alien, like, I couldn't even begin to fathom, you know, how much level of detail they put into every part of this movie. Like, not only the planet they, that they land on, but the spaceships and the suits and, like, everything in between. Like, his attention to detail for the visuals is really fucking stunning. What are some more strengths that you, uh, are there any more strengths you want to point out? Yeah, um... I, I also think that he has a lot of shots that are often common in animation uh, where everything, like you could print any frame and hang it like a painting. Uh, I also get the sense that he wanted to be a science fiction filmmaker. Like that's to me what he is the most passionate about because even though Prometheus is a dumpster fire of a movie, like he sets up that world so quickly and so well that even though everything is kind of weird and you're like, I don't know that this fits, it fits in the world that he built for that movie. Even if it doesn't, even if it's kind of the redheaded stepchild of Alien. Well, speaking, probing a little bit more into that aspect, mm-hmm. what, do you, what do you think that he actually has to say about technology? Because like, I think from pivoting from Aliens to Blade Runner, and then even, you know, two decades later with The Martian, um, what do you think like he has to say about technology overall? In my mind, uh, I think that he sees it as a tool, but I also think that he is deeply fearful of becoming over-dependent on it. Uh, I very much get the sense that like a lot of Blade Runner and a lot of Alien and a lot of like even The Martian would have played out differently if people were less dependent on their technology. Because let's not forget the reason that the alien gets on the ship is because their science officer is a robot. Yeah. And he cannot use his good judgment. He can only follow orders. Um, you know, and that's kind of the same when she logs into the computer. She can't reroute the computer because the computer has been wired to do this certain command. And the fact that they also call the computer mother, I think is very kind of 
and mother is a thing that comes up a lot in relation to technology because one of the tests that's the most prominently featured in Blade Runner is uh, using only positive words to describe your mother. I think that he thinks it's a tool. I also get the sense that he, he is very leery and he is making a statement by kind of consistently contrasting it to a parent that it is not a parent and that it doesn't care about you. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, the tech and aliens, like, like it doesn't give a shit about anybody. <laughs> like, no. like the, it's like even the, um, the, you know, mother system, it's flat out clearly says, uh, crew all expendable. So it's mm-hmm. like, yeah. And like, um, Blade Runner, you know, they don't know like who to act like they don't know. They just know that like, um, the the um, replicants are going to kill people. Yeah. Like they don't like they don't bother to reason with it. Like they don't really like try to figure out their motivations. The replicants yeah. are going to kill people. So yep. Which uh, I'll be honest, uh, I did not like Blade Runner very much. Oh, we'll get, we'll get into that a little bit. Don't um, worry, we'll get into that specifically. But um, uh, I think that that generally speaking, Ridley Scott is even in Prometheus and the subsequent alien clusterfuck, right? Uh, Michael Fassbender plays a robot alien situation that is trying to destroy the crew to further science because the kind of discovery aspect from a robot's perspective is greater than a human life. Yeah, like that's... That's the whole premise of Prometheus, yeah. And so, technology I mean, doesn't care about you is kind of the long and the short of it, because even if you contrast it to Ripley, like she rescues the damn cat, she tries so hard to help everybody, and at the end of the day, you know, the only living thing she's really willing to sacrifice is the thing that's killing all of her teammates. Do you think of that specifically? Uh, so, in Alien, we definitely have like a female protagonist that um, it's more drawn out in Aliens, the sequel. But in this movie, um, you know, she's clearly working hard to save everyone's life. Um, what do you think that uh, sticking to these three movies that? Um, he first, you know, created. Mm-hmm. What do you What do you think that uh, Scott has to say about men and women in particular? Because it's obviously, yeah, he has like a complete distrust of tech, but um, or maybe, oh. or maybe he's saying we should be fearful of tech. But what do you think he has to say about men and women? So I'm really struggling with this because I. So, I would say that the Duelists is a pretty cross-sectional representation of how women were portrayed in in the time yeah early Um, 19th century france yeah yep uh and i was really pleasantly surprised because the woman who lives with uh dubert you know kind of when they're living in sin together is still a character like she's fleshed out and she's got stuff she's got personality and that's very uncommon for fallen women, especially at the time period. Um, 
I wrote a senior thesis about Jane Austen. So like I did a lot of kind of research into fallen women and that was kind of my, my thesis. Right. Um, You know, and then the woman that he marries at the end, Adele is still a good character. She's only in it for a little bit, but she's, she's got some oomph too. Yeah. Um, which I really, you know, I to me is uncommon uh, in kind of representations of women at the time that aren't like Lizzie Bennet. Like, unless they're the main character, they don't got that much going on. Um, yeah. In Alien, I really love Ripley. Um, I really think that it it comes across sometimes as man writing woman, TM, because he pretty much just wrote a man but pretty yeah which is fine uh i think she is a great character i love watching her kind of grow and change i love watching her get frustrated that people won't listen to her yeah that Um, happens a lot in the second one oh well he didn't he didn't uh direct it but yeah the character yeah keep going though um and i really i really valued that and then in blade runner he pretty much is like all women are terrible (laughs) um and like i'll be honest i was not expecting the amount of like and i know it's only one scene but like the amount of sexual coercion that harrison ford does and the amount of sexual coercion that the camera does to rachel there are so many shots where her fucking head isn't in frame because they're framing her shoulder, you know, that, that very chewable collarbone she's got, or her very tight waist, or whatever. And it kind of, and this is going to sound so bad, like Ridley Scott, I really do think you're an excellent filmmaker, but this is just kind of the first thing that came to my mind. It was like, you know how in Suicide Squad, Harley Quinn's head was never the focus of the shot? Yeah. It was always her her tukus or her, her bazungas. It had that energy. Yeah, I uh, I rewatched it yesterday, and yeah, it, it was definitely not what you wanted. It was really bad, yeah. Watching this movie for the first time, like, what, yesterday? Two days ago? Yeah. Was really... I, yeah, no... Actually, you know what? Because actually, let, we don't. We, there's no purpose of waiting. This is our show. We can do what the fuck we want. So let's actually deep dive dive a little bit more into Blade Runner specifically. So, um, so let's get some of your more fleshed out thoughts on not not only that the Rachel sex aspect of it, which was really really uncomfortable and really awkward. But let's go a little bit further into some of your thoughts on Blade Runner. Yeah. Um. Okay. So. We'll we'll just start really simple. I was all in on the first hour and 20 minutes of this movie. I was like, future noir, I love it. The aesthetic is so good. It's a little bit fifth element-y, but like kind of dirty and gross. And like, I love it. I love that kind of blue glow of the neon that everything is kind of bathed in. Um, Which, by the way, that's another thing that I think he does really well, uh, is these kind of lived-in feeling futures. Because Alien has a green neon feel on kind of everything that feels more industrial and spacey. 
Whereas yeah. the blue glow kind of makes everything feel like seedy and lived in and, you know, like kind of sequins and gross. I love it. Um, also, you know, I love that all the glasses are square because it's the future. <laughs> Literally, my first note about a woman in this movie is, hi, Rachel, and your retro dom aesthetic. <laughs> oh, I love Rachel when she comes on the scene, the first scene. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but then everything about women is like, okay, 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 okay. You know, you have the woman with the snake who's an asshole. Uh, you have, and again, gets shot in a literal, like, collection of partially clothed female mannequins. Cute. Um, but like I said, I was totally in on the first hour and 20 minutes of this. I was like, wow. Okay. Hello. Like, future noir crime film. Okay. Yeah. Like, hi, I love this. Um... You know, I love Harrison Ford as this kind of hard-boiled detective that makes it really hard to tell if he's just seen some shit or maybe he's a rep too. Like, you know, everyone's eyes are kind of a, a motif in this movie except his. And you can't uh, tell if that's because he's got a secret or if because he's, you know, a rep until kind of the end. Do you think he's a replicant? So I watched the version that's on Netflix that's the 2007 version yeah um and in my mind it's somehow the movie was equal parts aggressively heavy-handed with and scant about it at the same time (laughs) that's actually a great way to describe that (laughs) um but then i afterwards i looked it up and ridley scott was like he's obviously a fucking replicant and i was like okay or or he is to me, like, it's more powerful if it's ambiguous, right? There, there you go. There you fucking go. Yes. Because um, it's like, did I just emotionally connect with someone and watch him emotionally connect? Oh, God. If he's a replicant, he wasn't able, shouldn't have been able to do that. Oh, God. Oh, God. What did I just watch? To me, that's much better of an end note than... Oh, well, that's what that is. Huh. Yeah. So it's because there's, I think there's legit been at least four different versions of Blade Runner. Yeah. And depending on how you edit the movie, it's going to tell you one or the other. But I think the biggest thing for me is, well, I, I mean, Ridley Scott, he said that he is a replicant, but Harrison Ford, he actually admitted to, I didn't play the character like I was a rel- like I was a uh, replicant. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of he played it very human, and maybe even really told him specifically, no, you're you're not a replicant. But um, the biggest tell is you know when people go back to the unicorn dream, and then at the end um, when um, almost he leaves the um, the. Uh, the origami unicorn. Yeah, like that's like that's to tell that he is the replicant, and I believe in like the earlier versions or some versions. I think that may not even been in a movie. Like they I just think cut the, the, the origami door. unicorn is always in it, at least from what the reading that I did about it. Okay. But the dream of the unicorn is not. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. Um, but also like. 
So I was all in on the first hour and 20 minutes, right? Like I, I was all in. I liked this idea. I liked kind of seeing this this group of replicants as almost a crime family. Yeah. You I know, mean, each one had a role. And I was like, yeah, okay, yes, love that. We stand. Like, and then in the last 30 minutes, it turned into a camp horror film. <laughs> yeah, it gets and, really trippy, yeah. And when I say, like, so quickly that, like, I assumed that my Netflix skipped... <laughs> I mean, I was like, I wasn't even looking at my phone. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Like, what? Something yeah. must be wrong. Like, I exited Netflix and started it again. Like, because yeah. it seemed so out of place. Yeah, like, there's a there's a big pivot from... So, basically, around the time when you, you find out that Rory can't... There's no way that they can actually extend their life their lifespans. Mm-hmm. Um, it, then it it really pivots to a real sort of surrealist tale of what you know. Like, There's supposed to be like a surrealist tale of like what life actually is, and like them pivoting from not really being the bad guys, but they're really just trying to desperately find survival. And Except that's visually. Roy is depicted as a freaking slasher. Like, yeah. there's the strobe light is going, and he is walking through walls. He sticks his arm through a thing and, like, cracks Harrison Ford's head against it. Like, I was watching this, and I was like, literally give him a mask, and he is, you know, Michael Myers. <laughs> he is Freddie Krueger. Like, he's whoever you need him to be in this horror movie. Like, and then in the middle of this... He literally just like plunks his ass down crisscross applesauce and explains mortality to Harrison Ford while holding a dove. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams Glitter in the dark near the ten hours of gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. Time. Die. <laughs> yeah, that's and like, the, that's the thing. <laughs> and then it just kind of goes. He like goes home and is like, Rachel, YooHoo, the woman I raped yesterday. Hello, like it. The ending of this movie is so disjointed. Like, <laughs> and you have to understand, I really wanted to like it. I. Don't- I for me personally, I don't, I don't, nece- I don't necessarily think it's. Well, I guess for me, I, I don't really have a problem with the disjointedness. Um, I actually, I don't really have a problem with. They let Rucker Howard basically write uh, Rucker, uh, let him basically write the um, the the final speech or whatever, like the final poem, 
and he just goes full like I'm just gonna trip acid and just write something very very poetic. Um, but I do think I do agree that like you know at least the first half of the movie, uh, the the scale of it, the imagination of it, it's I think it's all like really done extremely well. Um, we definitely agree, you know, the uh, the Rachel uh, sex scene is is really uncalled for and very gross and very beyond, like not needed in the movie. I don't um, know if that's supposed to show that he doesn't have human emotions, or if that's just meant to show, like. My hope was that it was supposed to be like, oh, this is a future noir movie, and with noir, there's always going to be the hard-boiled detective, and there's always going to be, you know, the leggy broad or whatever. Like, I mean, that could be a part of it. But it felt... I guess my issue is that it builds up this such a noir world, and then suddenly it goes, like, creepy dolls, strobe lights like weird horrifying costumes waxing poetic about morality and mortality and the world you know the state of the world and all the planets and like all of that pretty much hinges right after this very noir sexual coercion you know hey i'm trying to help you here kind of scene yeah. And that shift burned all the goodwill I had up to that point. Yeah. And I'm I not think... trying to be a militant like feminist or anything cuz like listen, like if we're making movies that represent the world, this stuff happens in the world. My issue comes that there's no resolution, that scene is very long and like it doesn't amount to anything. This is what it's like to live in fear is what a man is saying to another man. What the hell? Like, you depicted a rape of a possibly human woman. You showed several women in horrible, unempowered positions, and a white man is telling another white man, this is what it's like to live in fear. Cute. I mean, that's actually a problem with Blade Runner 2049, which is another movie that I really love. But it's it is really a it is kind of a strange thing to see white men tell other white men that slavery is a bad thing. Well, I mean, it's it just kind of is what it is. And I don't think calling that out makes you extreme uh, an extreme feminist or like one that's like that's a bad thing. But it's like... Are there any black know, people in this movie? Oh, hell no. Um, the, Lots yeah. of Asians, though. Uh, yeah, having some, uh, you know, questionable accents. Um, but, the, um, but no, the, the point I was going to make, like, I don't think, you know, calling that stuff out makes you with a bad feminist or not or whatever. But, um, but no, like, I mean, it's like, so for me personally, like pivoting to someone completely different than Ridley Scott, like um, Quentin Tarantino, mm-hmm. um, you know, in in all his movies, he has white people dropping the N word like it's no tomorrow, and a lot of people have problems with that. But there will never be a situation when I'm in a room full of just white people, 
And like I'm pretty, I'm very sure he's been in plenty of situations where he's been in rooms with many just white bros and white dudes, and they throw around the N word like it's no tomorrow. He saw that, put it in his movie, and then that that is what it is. I mean, yeah, like I don't want to hear white people say the N word, but to say that they don't use it in conversation with each other, even if it's a, a point of they're not really maybe not being like a gross racist, but they're obviously using it in like a racist way or a joking way. Like, I mean, I, I know for a fact that like that happens. So to put something like that in the movies, like I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I agree with you on that aspect. Um, you can tell stories, even if they're gross stories, even if the story is hard to hear, but um, you can be truthful in telling those type of stories. And so, you know, that scene with Rachel, like, you know, maybe, you know, maybe, you know, he was trying to do some noir thing where he's like a regular cop and he's trying to do what he has to do or whatever. But at the same time, I mean, you know. There just, were no consequences for that action. Yeah, it wasn't. It was not. Yeah. At all. Yeah. Like, and, for me, I literally was like, oh, he just cut the part where you're parroting. Like, she's, you're prompting her on what's like... Why is this scene so long if it accomplishes nothing? I think the I think the only thing that it was trying to accomplish was um them gaining feelings for each other. Like or at least um physically showing their feelings for each other. Like he's being wild aggressive, but And she's she she ragdolls. Yeah. She literally does the panic response that people do when they're in danger. Yeah. Like, she she just freezes up and is like, if I stay like this, it'll be over. Yeah. Like, so, uh, you know. Well, listen. yeah, no, like, yeah, we, we agree that, like, that's not how people should, quote unquote, show love for each other. And it's completely bad. So. Especially because there's like some some sultry saxophone music playing when she's like taking yeah. her hair out, and then like as soon as this starts, that just stops. Like it's not like oh this is you know trying to be sexy and it aged poorly. No I, shit. Maybe that's what it was. Like I think, no because the, then the saxophone music would have had to continue. There would have had to be some indication that they thought you know, up to this point and after this point were the same. I mean, because you got to think, like, this, it's, we're coming out of an era where the whole no really means yes. So, right, but, like, she's taking her hair out, right? And it's kind of, the shot is centered on her kind of collarbone. And then he comes over and he puts his hand on her face and he basically makes out with her cheek for, like, a while. I was kind of checking my watch, like, bro is dude um and then he goes to the kiss and she gets up and when she gets up the like sultry sax music stops so it's no longer like kenny g sexy times it's like a hard stop in the music yeah um you know but at the same time like all right so then we cut over to tris getting all sexy and making out with Roy, but she's a woman with sexual agency. Sex didn't just happen to her, so now she has to die. 
you know, I know most Steven Spielberg movies are him working through his daddy issues. Did Ridley Scott like have a have a, a bad mom? Like, I don't know what's going on here. Because women are either men, like basically one of the guys, or whatever this is. Um, I mean, if you look at so even the movies that I talked about earlier that are notable from him, um, I mean, Thelma, I haven't watched Thelma Louise probably since 1991. I mean, but I believe one of them is supposed to be like ditzy, and I don't, I don't know. Like, I feel like that's a movie where they're two women. They, I think they kill a dude, and then they're on the run, and then they I both, seen it. and then they both die or whatever. Like, um, well, just I mean, overall, like, so between Alien, Blade Runner, Duelist, Martian. Thelma Louise, Gladiator, Black Hawk Down, American Gangster, Black Chicken I think you only have, like, three movies in that bunch, three or four movies in that, like, nine that I named that women are at least given some sort of equal power or better than men. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so he probably does have issues, which, I mean, it is not uncommon for men to have issues with women. But, but let's actually pivot more um, to a movie that uh, a specific film of the three that you did like um, the most and we'll talk about um, the the other movie that we haven't discussed yet so of the three um, what would you say that you like the most Alien alright so what are some of the um, qualities I know you talked a little bit about um, how you love Ridley I'm oh, sorry Ripley um, but talk a little bit more about Alien, uh, what you liked about it. Um, I think you gave it five stars on Letterboxd, so yep. definitely, I mean, you, I feel like your five stars are Which very... Which you gave to Blade Runner. I did give Blade Runner five stars. I gave it five stars for... Well, definitely not for that scene, the sex scene. But like I said before, I the scale of the movie what the movie sort of means to, I guess, just sort of pop culture overall, where, I mean, you even named it, you, you named a movie that um, it sort of, it took from Blade Runner. Um, a lot of dystopian future movies really borrowed from Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I think actually I made like Blade Runner 2049 better than the original Blade Runner. And I gave uh, that a little rate. This is the only so. movie I've given five stars on Letterboxd. So, yeah. So, but no, for me, for Blade Runner, like, a lot of the, I guess, sort of imagination that the movie has, I, I think the biggest the biggest thing that you can't get over is the, the Rachel sex scene. Um, for me, that is, like, the only flaw in the movie. Uh, but for me, everything else in the movie, I really, really liked. And I did like how they kind of pivoted from just catching three like three or four bad guys to at least trying to have sort of some sort of commentary on humanity and you know life or whatever mm-hmm. um but yeah i, I but like really i said i like all the ideas i just feel like there was a little bit of gear shifting that they missed in my opinion it didn't feel like it was building to that at all it felt like they were like, ah, oh, shit, we don't want this to be over two hours. Uh, God, oh, fuck, we only have a half an hour. Okay, uh, uh, we're just, we're doing it. We're doing the climax right now. 
And tonally, I didn't buy into the slow burn that we had had up to that point. Yeah. I would also like to give a a quick, quick shout out before we pivot all the way to uh, when Harrison Ford is like the inspector from that agency. And he's like, I'm trying to see if there are any holes. Like that voice that he does. I was dying. Yeah. Harrison Ford trying to act like a nerd is, uh, you really rarely ever he, see that. So. But, like, he also is absolutely the type of guy that would probably have been like, oh, this fucking beta. Like, come on. <laughs> Don't lie to me with this guy. Don't do me like that, home slice. Oh, and actually, before we get off of Blade Runner, so where does this Harrison Ford rank among all your Harrison Ford that you have ranked? Because, is so... Is the conversation the number one Harrison Ford still, or is it Indiana Jones? This is up there. I'll be honest. He looks a little <laughs> too skinny, though. Like, there were a couple moments where I was like, honey, eat a sandwich. I can see all of your ribs. Like, it's okay. Are you okay? <laughs> Do I need to call somebody? Um, but, like, I think I think... Temple of Doom is probably still still my numero uno, uh, but that might just be because I really like him covered in blood. Uh, <laughs> I don't, and like that ripped shirt and like, uh, uh, and also just like his professor persona is just, uh, uh. Um, you, you stand a person that is intelligent and can crack a whip. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you guys should see your face. <laughs> um, but I would say that he is probably this. This is definitely cracks the top three, at least for me. Okay. Yeah. I mean, minus the he's a rapist part. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll make another director's cut. We'll cut that completely. I am man till so. he gotta be great. All right. Now specifically for. For Alien, because um, I saw like it said, you gave the five stars on Letterbox, and yeah, I definitely would, I would definitely concur that the five star for you is the very holiest of holy stars. But uh, what specifically, what what was the motivation for you giving it five stars? So to me, this is probably the most perfect, like creature feature suspense movie ever um (laughs) and like you have to understand you're talking to someone who has like a deep psychological obsession with the creature from the black lagoon and like i am making the point here that this may actually be a better movie and that is painful for me to say um (laughs) It should be joyous, not painful. It it is both, uh, because really I just want like the xenomorph and the creature from the Black Lagoon to hug it out. Like I want them <laughs> to be buddies. Um, but to me, this movie is such an excellent portrayal of, first of all, just like how any job can be boring if it's done enough. You know, this kind of space trucker thing where we're like, wait, they're in space. And they're like, oh, my God, I want to get home and eat real food. Ugh. Like, <laughs> and, you know, they I believe that they were on they've been in this 
truck, this space truck together for a long time. Yeah. And they're tired of each other's shit. <laughs> and they they know all of each other's annoying quirks and there are so many little moments in this movie that when things finally do start going wrong you don't see the chestburster until 58 minutes in yeah and then just watching a, an initial kind of slow burn into big crazy action psychological horror drama that kind of happens is in in my mind kind of the perfect it's it's perfect because by the time she blows him out of the airlock and you know vaporizes him in the thing or her all all aliens no all aliens are boys there's an alien queen um (laughs) like by the time she blows him out the airlock and blows him up like I was physically tired. <laughs> this movie's a lot, yo. It's a you want to know what I was doing while watching this movie? Icing my leg on my bed. <laughs> um, and like I only have two pages of notes, and I would say half of them are, uh, "Wow, Zeno looks so good. This movie is so good." Uh, I think that the chestburster death may be the most pleasant way to die. Uh, <laughs> I really hate that other woman, like the way that she shouts. <laughs> I, 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 but the for me, the the moment that makes this movie perfect is the immediate like scene uh, after all crew expendable. Yeah. Uh, that that is her fighting the robot guy whose name I'll never Ash. Um, and them, you know, kind of scuffling, but also just that she lets out this like primal scream. <laughs> like it just tears out of her, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. Um, it just watching this movie after watching Underwater which I saw uh, back in January I remember thinking wow this is is like really trying to pay homage to Alien and then watching Alien again I was like oh no they are trying to rip off Alien (laughs) down to I survived to the end I gotta strip down to my little cotton tank top and panties like (laughs) it was kinda nuts first of all I really appreciate that none of these movies have been over two hours Uh, Alien is an hour 59 and that's the longest Uh, one of my favorite notes is in space everything is complicated and takes forever because that's (laughs) Like, you feel that, you know? Like, I've never found myself watching Alien and being like, oh my god, when is it gonna happen? Because every time I watch it, I'm like, okay, like, yeah, no god, it would take forever to get, like, into an airlock. Like, of course you would try all these things for, like, you know? it, it To me, it just, 
by being so at home in its own world, yeah. it really makes everything flow and fit and exist organically with itself. You know something really random about Alien that I like that mm. Ridley Scott actually does well in all three of these movies? He lights darkness very well. Yeah. Like, Aliens is a, is a really dark-ass movie, but we can still see these people very beautifully and very clearly. And, I mean, that adds to, like, the, you know, the, the scariness of it where it's like your eyeballs and your brain are trying to make sense of you know, what's in the shadows, like, yeah. um, like, really, Scott really does that really well, especially, also, like, yeah, especially when, um, whenever, you know, he, he, uh, breaks the chest, and then he eventually grows, and you're really sort of, you know, creeped out about, like, where the hell is he hiding now, so, yeah, that was, that was always really good. I also like that he, he usually lights the alien more green, and he he lights the the people in the dark with more warm tones. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. Uh, also, musically, there's just one moment where you see Ash and he's kind of being all robot-y over in a corner, and uh, they're kind of making it clear that he he values the mission, even though they don't necessarily know what the mission is over the yeah. team. And as you kind of see that, classical music starts. Um, and I, I find it so, you know, kind of the idea of he doesn't value people as like music, one of the, the most kind of human things, like he literally turns on a radio. Yeah. It's just like, it's such a like unique kind of juxtaposition of emotions that you probably wouldn't experience watching this movie for the first time. Yeah. Um, in, in my mind, this is just kind of the perfect creature feature. I love the design of the xenomorph. I love that they all have patches on their little jumpsuits with their different jobs. <laughs> I, a, I like that. Yeah, I mean, one thing I will say, and this is something I've noticed in a lot of Ridley Scott's early science fiction, liberal use of strobe light. <laughs> yeah. Both it's... this and Blade Runner have a lot of strobe light. Yeah. <laughs> it, it plays with your brain a little bit, but yeah, it's a lot. The reason this movie is R is because of the chest bursting scene and like, the kind like when they lob that guy's head off and he starts spewing hydraulic fluid everywhere. Like <laughs> they don't swear a lot. They don't like, but it still feels authentic. It just it feels like very real fear when Sigourney Weaver finds out the cat is alive and the noise that she makes when she finds out the cat is alive is just so like you you feel what she's been through. Yeah. So specifically about Alien, and mm. I do think that I actually, I actually, I, I like Aliens Two better only because Bill Paxton is fucking ridiculously funny in that movie. 
But I do wish we would actually got really Scott to make the sequel because yeah. I think his I think his vision definitely would have been better than James Cameron, whose Cameron is basically I'm just trying to make muscle bound action movies. Like I really don't give a shit about stories at all. Like when that- Cameron is making his own movies, he does great work. He cannot make someone else's movies. Does that make sense? Kind of like J.J. Abrams? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, I get what you're saying. Yeah, I agree. What makes me want to get close to someone and snuggle? Fear. Salutations. I'm Melisette. And on A Frightful Fret with Melisette, I read classic horror stories combining audiobooks and audio drama into a podcast. Come away with me into the darkness and let me make your ears tingle with a sensation of terror. A Frightful Fret with Melisette. Available everywhere podcasts are and find us at ourfrightfulfret.net. Don't forget. We talked about we talked about Alien, and we talked about um, Blade Runner, but we have not talked about uh, really Scott's debut film, uh, Duelists. Duelists, pluralized. Um, I think I that, loved it. Oh, good. <laughs> I was going to say I really liked that movie a lot. Like, um, I. I initially fell asleep on it only because I was mega tired, not because it was boring. But I finally, you know, the next day I woke up and like I watched it from top to bottom, and I really like that movie. Um, Me too. I think it's <laughs> like the pettiness that men have towards each other. <laughs> I literally pro- wrote like half a page about one eyebrow raise, like, like bro. and. Uh, when they run into each other in, I think, like, 1812 in Russia. Yeah. You just see the blonde one, and he just does this one little thing with his eyebrow. And I'm like, he is 900% done. He is so over it. <laughs> like, he's so over it. And you can just see it in that little just... <sighs> like... Yeah. It's... It's so funny. Like I've never heard of this movie before. We started researching this, honestly. Um, yeah. But I thought it was a, I thought it was a very interesting kind of look at how, sort of what grudges do to people, um, but also the idea of kind of like what honor is. Like this guy, uh, Harvey Cartel's character. Like, like the the movie the movie doesn't necessarily admit as to why. He held this grudge, but I'm of the mindset he did it because of the that um that woman he was trying to court in the very beginning mm-hmm. of the movie. Um, he like well, especially because she immediately turned around and started hitting on uh on uh Duber. Yeah, uh, I wrote down. Uh, I I I'm sorry, my lady, but I have to. Uh, will you please excuse us? Uh, I need to take whatever his last name was. I didn't catch that. And she says, well, return this evening then and plead my forgiveness. Yeah. And I was just like, bitch. 
She was definitely like, trying to some, get the draws. That was some some big dick energy that she had. Yeah. Uh, I do also love. There are a lot of good quotes about love this movie, uh, but when uh, the brunette girl who is named Laura, yeah, says, uh, "With this ring, I renounce love and make do with you." <laughs> I was dying. Yeah, I really liked her character a lot. Like, I mean, it's. And I think it's interesting how, you know, she should have just listened to him and, you know, just kind of not put his life on the line all these years later. <laughs> but, I mean, men don't listen to shit, so. Well, yeah, I also, I don't know that it's entirely, like, I don't know whose fault this is. I'm not convinced that this is anyone's fault. You know what I mean? I mean... Speaking to that, which thinking about it the way you put it like that, I think it's I think it's correct. I mean, because Gabrielle, even though he's the instigator of this, like um, Armand, he literally could have just not dueled. Your duty is to victimize me. Am I mistaken? You have chosen to hunt me out in the drawing room of a lady toward whom I feel Sir, the deepest. Your inexpressible sentiment. But I can assure you that the hunting was no choice of mine. You have insulted me. You have insulted me! I have strained my patience in order not to do so. And I demand an apology! This is too ridiculous. Really too ridiculous. A proper general's poodle. Can you fight? I see no reason whatever for us to fight. What reason would you like? Shall I spit in your face? Shall I cut a chunk out of your backside or would that be too ridiculous? How do you get back to your general now? Through the window? Hmm? I believe you're really quite a madman. You draw your sword. You draw your sword. Oh my God, I'll chase you down the street like a chicken. You will chase me nowhere. He could have, quote unquote, took a hit to his honor or not. But yeah. at the same time, like these are these are men who are obviously concerned about what their sort of reputations are, um, what honor is. Um, and he, you know, at the end, like when he's doing the hunting, like you can get a sense of like, bro, like I this is it. Like the other duels, I know it's gonna come after me eventually, but this is it. So I have to kill this fucker, or you know, I'm gonna die. And so He's like hunting his ass. Like he's he's like in the woods, like really trying to clap his ass, whatever. Yeah. But the whole dozen dozens of years when this shit was all going on, he could have literally just said, "Yo, we're not doing this shit at all. Like, stop bothering me." And he never does. So, I think I think it's 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 kind of it takes two to tango, basically. For me, one of the other things though is that like, let's be honest. Like, uh, Dubert in the beginning uh, was just following orders. Yeah, and he fucking like, flipped out. Yeah. And and so, really, I think it, it is not an insult to anybody's honor. And if it is, frankly, I think I would probably be more upset by the general 
who is trying to have him arrested, but he cannot fight somebody higher up than him. Yeah. Uh, for that would also be a breach of honor. So he settles for what he can get his hands on. And I love the resolution of this movie where he, he says. You have kept me at your beck and call for 15 years. I shall never again do what you demand of me. By every rule of single combat from this moment, your life belongs to me. Is that not correct? Then I shall simply declare you dead. In all of your dealings with me, you will do me the courtesy to conduct yourself as a dead man. I have submitted to your notions of honor long enough. You will now submit to mine. Like, he's got a life, he's got a baby on the way. He goes home from this freaking crazy duel, in the which, by the way, like, the man versus nature themes in the end of this movie, great, I loved them all. Uh, but, like, <laughs> he, he goes home to his wife, and she's like, oh, my God, I thought you died. And he was like, yeah, sorry, I, uh, today's been nuts. Also, I brought you oranges, because I know you've been craving them. Like, oh, what a man. <laughs> what a man. Like, in kind of very... Ridley Scott-ish way they they kind of I don't know how to say this exactly so I'm going to try my best all of the kind of dialogue means a lot but also doesn't feel like it means a lot at the same time kind of extrapolate that a little bit more yeah, so I think in a lot of his movies, every thing, a lot of the things that his actors say are kind of double entendre-y. Or even yeah. if they're not necessarily meant to be, they're delivered that way. Uh, so the kind of idea of, I have entertained the idea that I belong to myself yeah, that was a good-ass line. In like the that moment line. that that is delivered, you assume that he is referring to the army, Napoleon, whatever, right? Yeah. As the film goes on and the friends of, uh, what's the guy, Gabriel, come over and yeah. say, so we fighting? And he's like, no. Come on. <laughs> You know, you kind of see that I have entertained the idea that I belong to myself coming back in. Yeah. And there are a couple times earlier in the film as well where he, he says, like, to Laura, like, well, then go get married. <laughs> you know, you kind of get the sense that he's always built his home with himself. Which is not like a thread you really see until it's pulled on. And then yeah. all of a sudden you see kind of the whole tapestry of the movie converge around it. And there are a couple of lines that I think do this. And there are lines that do that in Alien. And there are lines that do that in Blade Runner. You know? So, so you think that, um, well, uh, really Scott didn't necessarily write the movies but i mean him being a director and he's had like a pretty big hand in these movies so you would you would agree that he does at least in dialogue he he handles dialogue fairly fairly well yeah i also think that he does a really good job 
of making, and I don't know if this is a thing he does or he just picks director, like, or actors rather, who are very good at this, but all of the characters feel real. They feel lived in. I feel like if I walked onto the set of Alien and asked people in depth about, you know, their jobs or their family back home on Earth or whatever, like, they would know. Yeah, yeah. And so that makes these lines that, you know, might be a throwaway line in the moment, but then when you go back and re-examine them knowing the end of the film like you do, you know, you start to kind of see all these different things line up. Yeah. Um, and I think that even if he didn't write the movie, he's really good at figuring out what things line up to make, like, the central thread of a person and then thusly kind of the central thread of the story. Um, at least in my opinion. No, I, I would agree with that. I think that... Um, I think he does a really good job in... Like, yeah, I think a part of the world building is still building those characters within that world. And all these people that he has, like, in each of these three movies, like, they're clearly their own people with their own set of ideas and how to operate within their own worlds. Um, Like, especially, I watch, I have, like, Alien on the background right now, and the only three people that survived so far or two white women and the one black dude. And so, like, they're, like, on the edge of extinction, but they're all, like, you know, working together and still trying to survive, even though, you know, clearly only one person will survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and the duelists in particular, um, like, the like even going back to earlier what you said, like, the woman in this movie, like, um, Armand's sister, um, his, you know, the mistress of I Aurora, love her. Yeah, and his wife, like all like the three mo- the three women in this movie, like they're all good as hell. And it's like, you know, he's a director that's clearly giving these women not only just something like quote unquote stuff to do, but actually meaningful things to participate in the movie. Which even in a movie like if we fast forward, you know, to twenty fifteen and the Martian, like he's he does the same thing. Like there's plenty of women in that movie. That contribute a lot in that movie. But all of the side characters in The Martian, I feel like I know. You know? Like, I remember which ones have kids. I remember which ones are married. <laughs> you know? I remember that the captain loves Abba. Like, I remember all of these, you know, kind of bits and bobs yeah. about them. Because he's so good at characterizing them. Like, yeah. people. Um, and there's, like, a line in this movie that I, I could not get out of my head. Where the sister says, oh... So you are in love. Well, then I can't be bothered with you. Get out. Go play billiards. And I'm like, oh, this has happened <laughs> before. Where he's, like, been in love and she just can't... She, take your emotional <laughs> bullshit and go. Like, you know? And even though we've never seen that, we didn't even know that she existed until just now. Yeah. You immediately are like, oh, this is a fight that's been happening for 20 years. Like... <laughs> You know, and it, it it is so well directed in that way. Yeah. Um, oh, speaking, of, yo, what about these hats? <laughs> these hats were all over the fucking place. The French are wild as fuck, man. These hats were like, I haven't seen better hats in a movie. 
Initially, the the hats and the haircuts are realistically would have been left over from the revolution. So that's like yeah, some yeah. big some big kind of leftover energy. And then because they're French, in 1806 they get better haircuts, which I made a note of. Um, <laughs> also, one of my notes is uh, no more quarrelsome halfwits and better haircuts. Hashtag 2020 goals? Question mark. Uh, I also uh, he almost gets out of the restaurant. Right, and they're like, "Oh, oh, uh, Arm- Armand de Dubert, ah!" And the guy is like, "Whoosh!" Like my nemesis. They just kind of activate. <laughs> uh, but then Laura walks in, and I'm like, "Guess who's back? Back again!" Like it was just such a like. Even though we had only at that point been with them for like a half an hour. Yeah. Like I was like, "Oh, I know this dynamic. I know where this is going," and I'm like excited to watch them like fight. And as they fight more, they start getting sloppy. And then after Russia, they start kind of getting tighter again. And, like, it, it's so interesting to see, like, how tired they got during the war. And then how kind of almost rabid but re-energized they got after the war. And, it, like, it's so... Yeah, it, it, the, the, I guess the, mm. most gru- the most gruesome fight, it reminded me of this old-ass this old ass, uh, Wu-Tang song where... They sample this. Um, it's actually funny. They sample this uh, karate movie from like 1979, and it's basically is like their techniques all vanished, and they just fight in like this wild, bullish way. So I, it's so weird. I thought of a Wu Tang song while watching the Duelist, and nothing about this movie is Wu Tang Clan at all. I so, don't, I don't know if you've heard, but uh, the Wu Tang Clan is in fact nothing to fuck with. They are, they are not nothing to fuck with. You're absolutely right. Um, but nah, man, this is, it's this is a really good movie. Um, I, I gave this four stars on Letterboxd. I don't think um, I rated it yet. Hang on. I, I don't think you did. God damn it. What, so what would you give this movie? I think I would also give it four stars. Okay. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed watching it. I would watch it again. I'm kind of sad my rental is only for 48 hours, I'll be honest. Yeah. Um, but, like, even though it has a lot of period kind of finery, which can often be a little heavy. Yeah. I feel that there's so much levity in here that this doesn't really feel like a period costume drama. Yeah. Yeah, he there there are definite pockets of like of uh, just sort of talking and he, he like uh Armand's like he's like, Oh fuck, he's here he's here, this motherfucker's here again and he's like trying to sneak out and then Harvey Cartel is like, nah dog, I see you right the fuck over there. Well, he nah. would have gotten out if that guy hadn't been like, "Oh, oh, you're a major or some shit like that." Like, yeah. Oh, wait, 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 wait! Very loudly, basically winking into the camera. Do bear, like basically, bro. He blowing up the spot. This shit was so funny. Um, but oh, this, 
I thought it was great. I honestly was all kind of all in on the just nonsense of this movie. We we talked about uh, crushes either last week or the week before. Do you think you can hold a grudge against someone for two, for a dozen years? Do you think that's even possible? No. <laughs> like, this is such a, like, weird thing to say, but, like, I am the type of person who, like, if I can find a reason that someone could have conceivably, like, done anything, even if they, like, really hurt me, if I can figure out even a possible reason, I'll probably forgive them. Damn. Yeah. Like, because I don't think holding that much negative energy is good for me. I'm a small person. I can't hold all those feelings in me at the same time. I'm like Tinkerbell. Um, <laughs> but, like, maybe Bro. if someone, like, actually murdered somebody dear to me. And, like... like Every other year, you had to scrap with them. Yeah. Like, if it was something that kept getting dug up, you know? Like, if I had to work with someone who killed my pet, like... (laughs) But I only saw them at a conference every year. Like, yeah, that would probably dig that stuff up. But I also think, generally speaking, like... This guy was like, dude, I just was doing my job. I'm like, I'm sorry it fucked up your day, but like yeah. I was I was under orders. Like I think to me it's mind-boggling because they're both military men, but neither of them seem to understand orders. I mean, they don't give a fuck about orders. That's that's clear. Like, I guess that's very French. <laughs> I guess. <so. laughs> Uh, I get well. We have, I guess, I guess the listeners. I guess you may have caught on by now, but basically, the plot of the duelist is these two French guys. They're they're fight. They're they are dueling each other throughout the Napoleonic Wars, basically, and from about 1801, I think it the last year that they actually fight is like um, 1816 or something uh-huh. like that. Like, they basically fight each other, like, once a year or once, like, every couple of years. And so it's actually one scene is, like, pretty gruesome. Uh, One guy gets his, like, head fucking sliced, and he somehow survived. (laughs) There's, like, a lot of PTSD energy in that scene. Like, he's on this horse, and he's flashing back through every time this guy has fought. And every bad thing this guy has ever said about him. And, like, that was as close to a period-accurate strobe light as Ridley Scott could have used. Because he was <laughs> cutting these sequences together so fast that I was like... Yeah. Is is the visuals... Are the visuals skipping? Am I having a stroke? Or is this just a movie? Like... Yeah. That... Actually, I... At first, it kind of was jarring. But then, eventually, I did come to like it, so... Oh, no, I, I get what they were going for, but in the moment it was happening, I was like, ah! like, yeah, I can see space. <laughs> oh, before we, uh, oh, just to pivot back to Aliens, because like I said, I'm still watching it. Um, did you watch the director's cut or the regular cut? I watched whatever's on HBO. For whatever reason, HBO has a director's cut as an extra feature to watch 
Oh. Um, I think ha- I just watched the regular. Yeah. So in the end, if you, uh, if you, if you like load it up and fast forward to like the hour thirty three minute mark, mm-hmm. you'll you'll see what happened to the to the one crew member that disappeared in the tunnel. Bro, see so it so his ass gets monched. Um not necessarily. But um it's it's an interesting scene or whatever, but um mm-hmm. I would say just check it out if you get a chance. Yeah, I will. Um all right, so for so of the three movies, I'm assuming your power rankings are number one alien, number two duelist, and number three Blade Runner. Yeah, but I would say that they're even though I really didn't like a lot about Blade Runner, that first hour and twenty is really, really good. Yeah. Like, I hate to compare it to the but I'm just thinking, like, in my mind, Fifth Element doesn't bail on its genre halfway through, or two-thirds <laughs> of the way through. You oh, know, it- love, it or, love it or hate it, and I really don't like, I don't buy Lilu and Corvin as a couple for a second. But at least I feel like, you know what, like, this is a very, like, hyper, hyperized world. Fine. No, no, I agree. I mean, minus the fact that she was literally born yesterday. But fine, whatever. Like, No, yeah, Fifth Element, like, from from real to real, like, they have the clear picture of what they actually want to do and what they want to be. I mean, if you have a movie... If you have a movie with Chris Tucker and Cheetah Print, like, you know specifically the movie that you're going to want to have. To my right, a row of ministers, more sinisters than ministers. To my left, Baby Ray, star, stage, and screen. He's not going to get much out of this concert because he's stoned up. To who? And here we have Roy Vaughn Baker, king of laser ball. Right, and like in my mind, this movie could have had, I think, as good of an ending without a like, and as good as of a moral kind of questionable message without this weird twist. Well, so of Blade Runner, so. What what specifically do you think you could like you would have changed about it if you had if you if you hand it to the DeLorean and go back to whenever they were writing yeah. the movie? What specifically would you change about the movie to improve it? So from the point where Roy crunches that person's skull, Terrell's skull. Yeah, and then he leaves. Yeah, and then so I would I would leave I would go with him leaving. With to go back to Triss, probably have, and I know this is cliche, but like I'm, I'm literally riffing because this is the first time I've really thought about what I would do. Uh, have Triss die, probably in his arms. I think having a moment 
where they may be even further ambiguous. Are they fucking? Are they just sibling-y? Like, what's going on? Because it's all very unclear. But still make it really clear that his lo- her loss affects him and that he is feeling. Because that's kind of the whole point, right? Is that, like, the replicants can't feel, don't let the replicants feel? Um, I think... And but have, I have think the kind of smart to explore that, but keep going. Have kind of the end, I would say proceed roughly the same, but make it a little bit more of a crime noir fight and have it be a little bit less of a horror film. And now there's a dove because we need to inspire John Woo or nobody else. <laughs> and like to make it more grounded in the world because I like all the ideas my issue is the delivery for the ideas still fit in the this is what it's like to be afraid the only other thing I would change in that instance is I think I would have Harrison Ford say I know because I love the further ambiguity of Wait, is he a rep or nah? You know, and just by literally turning those gears in Roy's face, I think creates an interesting dynamic and also an opportunity in which he can feel or display feeling, even if it's not authentic, would make a little bit more visual interest. Also, maybe cut the part where he crisscross applesauces and explains his evil plan. Because, like, at least recontextualize it. Because, again, I like the ideas. I like everything it's trying to say. I just feel the way that it's framed in the narrative that we got up until then is so... Like, you, you really burned out the shifter when you tried to change your gears. All right. So I don't think, well, I don't think there's necessarily the ideas you have are wrong at all. Um, I think they try to, specifically the end when him and Rachel sort of get away, mm-hmm. I think they want to use that as the actual acknowledgement that he is trying to save the rub against life. But um, I mean, the end of that is so kind of like, kind of cut together like pretty hasty maybe not hastily but I watched that three times because I was like I'm missing something right like where yeah the the final scene when they're in this house like I I don't think it lasts more than 30 seconds honestly um so yeah I think they try to rely on that as the emotional crux but um it's not but, but yeah but extrapolating that out like I don't, I don't necessarily think that it's a bad thing, honestly. Um, but I also kind of feel like, all right, you know what? Like, if we are going to end up in this horror ending that then turns into kind of almost an escape movie, then maybe continue that, th- like, start that thread a little earlier in the movie. What do you mean, like, um, them just escaping L.A. together? Yeah, no, but, like, so let's let's turn every scene that Roy is in into more of a horror scene. 
even if it's just in the lighting cues or whatever, right? Let's let's make him kind of feel like the impending bad guy we're trying to catch up with. And then when we catch up with him, oh, wait, he's actually trying to articulate the struggle of replicants and less like, oh, that's the guy we got to catch. When are we going to catch him? When are we going to catch him? Oh, wait. Oh, okay. Suddenly he is very competent, very like evil. Oh, wait. Now he's explaining why he's not evil. He's just misunderstood. But we never saw that. So I don't. I didn't care about Roy at all. Really wow, didn't think he that's... was that interesting. Wow. I think... Um, because they they uh, backloaded so much of his development. And, like, I mean, from this movie, like, he is the iconic character from this movie. Really? I'm surprised you didn't come here sooner. It's not an easy thing to meet your maker. And what can he do for you? Can the maker repair what he makes? Would you like to be modified? Stay here. I had in mind something a little more radical. What? What seems to be the problem? Death. Death. Well, I'm afraid that's a little out of my jurisdiction. I want more life, father. Yeah, so the, I mean, the legacy of Blade Runner specifically is that last scene of Tears, Tears in the Rain. So, like, yeah, like that, that is a scene that's cemented for a lot of people of them having Roy as sort of like an iconic character. Morphology, longevity, incept dates. Don't know. I, I don't know such stuff. I just do eyes. Just eyes, genetic design, just eyes. You Nexus, huh? I design your eyes. Chew. If only you could see what I've seen with your eyes. Questions. I don't know answers. Who does? I mean, I can see it. But also part of me is wondering, like, if this is another one of those movies. I'm like, I'm not trying to be, like, weird. But, like, you know how some movies you're like, was this a trope when it came out or do I just exist so thoroughly in a world post this no, that like you, this in my mind has become a trope and this no. is, might have been where it started because like I said I literally watched this movie for the first time yesterday No you you exist in a movie you exist in a world where movies after Blade Runner siphon Blade Runner for their movies so it's 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 more than likely it is that like it's it it really is like a sort of a cult movie that a lot of directors like really really gravitated toward especially when the director's cut came out so like like, i give it three star i don't hate it i just it was so jarring because i liked it i was on board i was with it and then it was suddenly something else 
and it's again, it's not the philosophy element. If anything, I actually think that move that is kind of the saving grace of what's happening. But it was so even just aesthetically, like that change happened, and I was like, what? Like, 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 and I mean, and that's kind of the thing. Like, I don't know your thoughts on Matrix, but. Like, you definitely don't get the Matrix without Blade Runner. Um, the idea of the through line of the original Matrix movie of where, you know, they're, they're, they're obviously commenting on technology, humans' relationship to technology, the abundance of us depending on technology, and us, you know, quasi being slave to technology. Um, that... And being fearful of technology, like those all have roots in Blade Runner. Yes. Um, so I think I think if, if Blade Runner was a movie, you may have caught maybe even maybe like um, maybe five or so years ago, maybe maybe we're like seventeen, eighteen, yeah. or whatever. I think I, I think you can sort of see the seams more for. You can see the roots of Blade Runner and other movies that you watch. And when you watch those movies, like, oh, wow, yeah, Blade Runner, they mm-hmm. tapped in on that. Because even for, like, uh, I was going to say Final Fantasy, even for Fifth Element, like, they do have, like, um, the whole, like, stacked on top of living yep. each other. Like, I mean, they don't have necessarily the same squalor that Blade Runner has, but it still all com- comes from that same lineage. Right. Yeah, I just... Like, it was almost there for me. And no, it isn't. But and honestly, honestly, the thing about talking about movies that are deemed classics, like it, it really doesn't have to be everything to everybody. In all honesty, and I think, I mean, honestly, that's the purpose. I think that's really the purpose of this podcast of like us really sort of fleshing out like what these mean, what these movies mean to us. But also, like, what they could possibly mean to society overall. Um, Because, I mean, like I said, the movie, when it came out, it was critically panned. Like, it took years for people to actually... It took a decade for people to kind of accept, like, you know, there's a better cut of the movie. Let's give the movie another chance. And then they did, and then people liked it. I mean, like, there's plenty of movies that people would, you know, deem quote-unquote classic that... It just doesn't resonate with everybody. And it doesn't have to mean everything to everybody. And so I, I know you said, you know, you I know that, you know, you gave it three stars or whatever, but in my eyes, like, I don't think that's a negative. Um, I think the, the points that you had or why the movie just doesn't work for you, you clearly articulated and you thought about. And, I mean, I think, I know there's going to be, like, bros or whatever that would disagree with your opinion, but at the same time, like, you know, <laughs> at the same time, it's like, bro, I mean, no one has, you don't have to think every, every classic is a classic. Like there's, there's plenty of movies that like people just don't like for whatever reason. And whether it's justified or not, even the thing, the idea of a justified dislike of a movie or not, that doesn't really exist. Like, if I say I don't like something, I don't like it, and I don't have to justify that either way. So, come and, at me, film bros, fight me in the DMs, bro. Film Twitter. I'm, oh. I'm really, 
I'm really glad I'm more part of basketball Twitter because film Twitter is film Twitter is funny to say the very least. I I don't know what I don't think I'm a part of any subgenre of Twitter, which I'm super grateful for. I would say <laughs> I am the most aligned with the Disney, like the Diz Twitter situation. But even then, I just have kind of handpicked like maybe eight people from Disney Twitter that I really like. And like yeah. same with film Twitter and same with whatever. And like I'll click over to someone else's page if they're linked to someone I really like and respect. But you have to come from someone I either know personally or hold an insanely high regard to get a follow based on a retweet. Like, I don't do that. Film Twitter is basically is basically siphoning opinions and then telling you why you're wrong. Like that's all film Twitter is like. And yeah, I, I'm not a part of film Twitter, uh, even though I, you know, obviously I post my writing on Twitter and obviously I post a podcast on Twitter, but no, I don't, I do not actively engage with a lot of different people about their movie opinions um, because it's not even a fact that all of, a lot of, trash opinions exist which they do but it's more so the fact of like if i state what i like that's because it's what i like and i'm not asking you Mm -hmm. to to take my opinion and film twitter is basically saying no this opinion is the only opinion you need to have and if you don't have it you're stupid like that's like that's the summation of film twitter and so i don't subscribe to that at all uh, I'm trying to see. Let's see. Let's let's take a look at my last. My last film tweet was uh, "Alien is a perfect movie. You cannot change my mind at this time." Uh, before that, uh, like I tweeted that I was watching a movie with my rabbit on my lap. <laughs> that was cute. Um, oh, on the off chance they never reopen, what's the last movie you ever saw in theaters? Oh shit. Um, oh, for me, it's a good movie. Uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. That was the last movie you saw in theaters? Yep. Um, I saw that, like, right... I, I saw it basically... Oh, no, I'm sorry. Fuck. It was Wendy. It was still a good movie to see, though. So, yeah, uh, mine Wendy was, was The, the Way Back. Ben Affleck's video essay about oh, his shit, substance you saw abuse that. problems Damn. tearing his marriage apart. Oh. I saw it for free. Hold on, you gotta review the movie. Like you gotta tell us because I'm uh, not maybe in- I'll drop my review because it starts streaming on Friday. Um because I did not write about that movie at all. Do you think you're gonna write about that at all? I might. Uh, the short version of the story is uh Ben Affleck hang on, let me look up the exact number. Uh Ben Affleck made a video essay about why his substance abuse problems tore his marriage apart and that he's sorry. And I'm, I mean Ben Affleck, not the character. <laughs> uh, and uh, as a side effect of that, uh, it's a really cringe movie. It's surprisingly dark, uh, which is not a bad thing necessarily. Uh, but to my mind, it it did not justify how dark it got, um, which I would say is fine if I was fine with it. Uh, 
Ben Affleck also consumes 48 drinks on screen. Jesus. Uh, and he gets sober about halfway through the movie. Spoiler alert. Uh, I mean, <laughs> the, kidding, all the I'm ads kidding, are kidding. like... Also, uh, there was a lot of weird visual like stuff. Like All the movie was shot handheld, and there were a lot of really zany-feeling zooms that happened in serious moments. <laughs> like there was like a serious conversation happening on the beach and all of a sudden it was like extreme close-up and everyone was like what every every serious movie needs a serious close-up um it what... was handheld so it was just like bobbing and like manual zoom like Ooh. oh uh i don't want to st- well yeah i don't want to step on if you decide to write it or not um but so I guess well shit. Okay, so yeah, I don't want to step on what you want to write, so I'm not going to ask the next question I was going to ask. But um, I know for myself, um, if it streams Friday, I'll you know watch the bootleg on Saturday because <laughs> I am not going to be paying twenty dollars for Ben Affleck. I'm sorry, Ben. Actually, I'm not sorry, Ben. <laughs> I am sorry. I have to. He's sorry. local. He's a national treasure. Um, $20 but, for that, though? Oh, um, no. I've already seen it. I'm fine. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, though. But yeah, so... Uh, ha-hoo. Yippee. <laughs> oh, man. Um, well, before we, before we um, officially end the episode... Um, I know I initially asked, what are you, um, what are you watching, but what is some, well, I guess all these, all the streaming stuff, well, all the theatrical releases are now going to pivot to just charging people 20 bucks for just watching it, um, in their house. Well, Um, you're also paying for damages to the theater. Don't forget. Oh, yeah. Um... But is there anything up and coming that you would pay the twenty dollars to see at home? Um, at some point, I'd like to watch Emma, uh, because I did a lot of work with Jane Austen. Uh, although I'll be honest, the next thing that's kind of on my list is uh the plot against America, the HBO show. Oh, has that not debuted yet? Uh, like three episodes are out, I think. But usually if I do a series, I wait and write my review at the end of the series. Okay. Um, what, um... Uh, I, guess oh, I, I guess I could catch up on Westworld. I was going to say, so you haven't watched any Westworld? I've watched the first two episodes. I really liked them. And then the person I was watching with and I broke up. Uh, and I oh, never went the- back. Oh, you mean the first two episodes of season one? Yep. That is, I mean, if you want to get triggered, I don't, you know, advise it being triggered. Um, so I can wa- I can watch Westworld for the both of us because I will be doing that. Well, I was <laughs> I didn't dislike it. I really enjoyed it. I don't think it'll bug me, bug me. I just didn't want to watch it at the time because it made yeah. me think about them more than I want to do. Yeah. Uh, I'm also excited to revisit Ryan Johnson next week. 
Ah, uh, yes. So next week we'll be continuing our director's trilogy uh, with uh, Ryan Good Money Johnson. Um, <laughs> um, I am looking forward to that. So, any excuse to watch Knives Out again, man? I need. I have not seen it since I saw it in theater. So that will be a good revisit, a rewatch for myself. Find Kat at Kat Chinetti on Twitter, Twitch, and Instagram. Find Marcus at Show and Mad Love on Twitter and Instagram. S-H-O-I-N-M-A-D-L-O-V. Please join our Facebook group at We Should Do This Again Sometime. And follow us on Twitter at Kat, K-A-T, and Mark, M-A-R-C. Read us at catseasmovies.tumblr.com and themarkrob, T-H-E, M-A-R-C-R-O-B dot WordPress dot com. Be sure to tip your waitress at Catherine Chinetti on Venmo. This podcast is executive produced by Kellen Conley and Eric Greenley under Hyphen Podcast Group in conjunction with It's Like a Podcast or whatever. Thanks again for listening. We should do this again sometime.